Welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moya Lothian McLean and filling in for our usual Tuesday host. But with me is my regular compadre, Ash Shakar. They tried to keep us apart, but we were just too strong for them. Let's kick off the show. It's day two of the National Socialism Conference. Sorry, conservatism. National Conservatism Conference. Now, if you saw the show last night, we played you some of the clips of the unhinged commentary on display there yesterday, and we're back for a second helping. But before we get to today's mess, last night they held a gala dinner in the Natural History Museum, where Douglas Murray said this. This is in some ways uh, still a uh, controversial thing to say. Because in Europe in particular, nationalism, after all, sounds different depending on the country you're in. Nationalism in Israel sounds different to nationalism in America, sounds different to nationalism in Italy, sounds different to nationalism here in Britain. But the cordon sanitaire, which used to exist around nationalism until recent years, existed not because we didn't trust the idea of love of country, not because, I would argue, there was anything wrong with nationalism in a British context. It all came from a recognition that there was a problem with nationalism in a German context. And that is simply a historical fact. But I see no reason why every other country in the world should be prevented from feeling pride in itself because the Germans mucked up twice in a century. The posturing of someone like Douglas Murray always reminds me of that actor, Tom Hollander, where he's playing a role. I don't know if anyone's seen the 2005 film Pride and Prejudice, where he plays Mr. Collins. It's exactly that faux English gentleman situation. And what Douglas Murray is saying there, describing the horrors of the Third Reich as just mucking up, you know, the Holocaust, just a snafu, you really can't make this stuff up. And what he's deliberately forgetting is that there were plenty of Britons who were pretty admiring of the fascists even back then, like the first Viscount Rothmere, proprietor of the Daily Mail in the 1930s. Here he is, applauding Oswald Mosley's fascists. And in 1933, fresh from a trip to visit his good friend Hitler, Mosley wrote an article with the headline, quote, Youth Triumphant. In it, he said, quote, under her Hitler's control, the youth of Germany is effectively organised against the corruption of communism. That wasn't actually Mosley, that was Viscount Rothmere. But yes, of course, Douglas Murray, it could not happen here. Murray then went on to complain about there not being enough rights for, quote, majorities. Instead of only talking about minority rights, we also once again remember that there is a thing called majority rights. That, that as important as minority rights are, majority rights matter as well. You might like to help 0.2% of the population, but how about giving a damn about 51%? Now, what on earth could Douglas Murray be referring to when he talks about majority rights? Somehow I don't think it's, you know, women. I think the word white comes to mind. And Tory MP Danny Kruger appeared yesterday at the National Conservatives Conference as well. Here's what he had to say. The normative family, held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children and the sake of their own parents and the sake of themselves, this is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. 
Marriage is not all about you. It's not just a private arrangement. It's a public act by which you undertake to live for someone else, for their sake and the sake of your children and the sake of wider society. And wider society should recognise and reward this undertaking. Downing Street was quick to distance himself from those remarks, asked this morning whether the PM agreed to that, quote, normative family was the only basis for a, quote, safe and functioning society. Rishi Sunak's spokesperson said, quote, no. And today, Telegraph columnist Tim Stanley used the event to display his impeccable logic. I was doing Ian Dale's radio show. I love Ian. He's a fantastic broadcaster. Uh, he's a very good bloke. Uh, but he is one of those liberal conservatives. Uh, and he said to me, how can a movement be so stupid as to call itself the National Conservatives? And I said, how can that be a bad thing? What's wrong with that? And he said, well, National Socialism. <laughs> and I thought, apart from the fact that the term has been coined by an Israeli, <laughs> apart from that important detail, if we are going to go to war on anything which dares put the word national in its name, we're also going to have to crack down fast on the National Trust, the NSPCC, and the National Health Service. Tim Stanley's smile when he says that, the smugness. And that was just a warm-up act, though, because the star turn belonged to levelling up Secretary Michael Gove. Asked what he thought about this conference of horrors, he said this. I think it's the sign of a party and a broader movement that is healthy, that you can have debate. One of the arguments that is sometimes made is that after 13 years in power, the time has come to dispense with the Conservatives because there's a lack of ideas, there's a lack of intellectual energy, there's a sense of exhaustion. I completely disagree. I think what we've seen at different points is the Conservative Party, as it always has, adapting to change circumstances. What's to think about there? The conference Twitter account also tweeted this line from Michael Gove. This conference is evidence of the intellectual energy we have in the centre-right at the moment. If this is the centre-right, I'd hate to see what they're saying on the far-right, but luckily a lot of them were in the room, so we know. And sure enough, there's energy, and I'm, I'm just not sure I would call it intellectual. The I newspaper's Paul War was at the Gove event, and he posted this on social media. At Michael Gove's tells, tells the at NatConTalk conference that, quote, the left polarises people into, quote, woke and unwoke. Conservatives don't do that. So funny, because the only people I ever hear using the word initially, woke, are Tories. They simply will not shut up about it. Gove was also there to deliver what many commentators are calling a, quote, rebuke to the Home Secretary, Soella Braverman, though. If you recall, we covered her speech yesterday at NatCon, in which she railed against immigration, multiculturalism, and what she describes as identity politics. Now, Braverman's address was widely interpreted as being a pitch to be the next Tory leader, but Gove seemed to subtly reprimand her today, asked whether Conservatives need to be engaging with issues like, quote, political correctness, he said this, I think the overwhelming majority of people in this country prefers civility. This goes to the whole question of the so-called culture war that is raging at the moment. There are certain principles you should defend, absolutely. And it is absolutely critical that we don't deny biological reality or that we don't feel that we should apologise for aspects of our past which are genuine sources of pride. But we should do so with the self-confidence that means we don't need to be strident. Interesting. Ash, is this National Conservatism Conference something we should worry about? 
The answer is yes and also no. The reason why it's no is that right now, this brand of hardcore culture warrior politics doesn't seem to have a great deal of electoral purchase. If you ask people, what are you going to cast your vote based on? It's primarily going to be things like the cost of living, the NHS, crime, and also immigration is still up there. But what these individuals are trying to do is reorient the entire conservative project away from the kind of socially liberal, economically conservative project of the likes of David Cameron, and also away from some of the more redistributionist instincts of Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings, this idea of leveling up meaning, investment redirected away from London towards regions which have suffered because of underinvestment and deindustrialization, and come up with something else. Because in the era of higher interest rates, of a uh, bigger debt to GDP ratio, and a prevailing conservative economic orthodoxy that they go, well, taxes are too high, and we're certainly not going to go after things like wealth or estates. Well, what what are you left with? And what is being uh, advanced at this National Conservatism Conference is a very nationalist, very authoritarian, and, you know, I wouldn't even call it a nod and a wink towards white nationalism, doing everything apart from saying that exact phrase, which has been kicking around in the right-wing, you know, intellectual political philosophy sphere for quite some time. This isn't dissimilar from what has been uh, really quite dominant in the United States. The sort of ideology which has taken over the Republican Party is also not that different from what you're seeing uh, in Marine Le Pen's party, and it's not at all different from what you've been seeing in Poland and Hungary. What's horrible about uh phrases like majority rights is, of course, Moya, you and I believe in majority rights. It's just when we use words like majority rights, what we're talking about are things like the electoral system and the way in which people are disenfranchised by first past the post. We're talking about the rights of majorities not to have their public services undervalued, privatized at a bargain price, and then for our taxpayer money to be extracted out of our economy out of our infrastructure and gobbled up by shareholders. You know, that's what we mean when we're talking about majority rights. We're talking about class majorities. But when Douglas Murray is using that phrase, it is strictly in terms of demographic, cultural, and racial majorities. So you're talking about the right for certain groups in society to enjoy a dominant position purely because of their you know, where they are in the numbers game. They're not, you know, keen on people being able to, you know, live their lives freely, except they can't really say as much. So when they're talking about the danger posed to the family unit, they're not talking about things like extortionate rents or the cost of living or the underfunding of our education system or the fact that people have to work sometimes multiple jobs or rely on food banks in order to put food on the table for their kids, they're talking about the availability of divorce. They're talking about the idea that women have too many choices and so may prioritize other forms of fulfillment over and above having children. They're talking about the idea that 
queer relationships have been, you know, significantly destigmatized uh, compared to previous decades and also enjoy legal rights and protections that they didn't in previous decades as well. Um, and so th- that's the thing that's so striking about, about conferences such as these is that they can't say with their entire chest just what it is they're in favor of because they know that it's something which is deeply ugly, which is repulsive to the very majority that they claim to be standing up for. Uh, public opinion has moved on a great deal. Most people want uh, minorities to feel safe and protected and happy. And most people want people to be able to have the choice to live their lives in the way that they choose. People don't really see divorce as this huge moral evil, which is corroding society from within. So that's why you've got this, this double speak going on in terms of what it is they really want. And they can't get away, I think, from the awareness that what they're advocating is a form of fascism. Now, it might not be Nazism, though I think when you name a conference national conservatism, there is more than a nod and a wink at the national socialism of 1930s and 1940s Germany. But it is certainly a form of fascism, deeply authoritarian, deeply opposed to freedom and deeply opposed to equality. While I don't think it's something which is going to have a lot of purchase amongst the electorate, as I said, I think right now the cost of living is the main thing that people are going to be voting for. In the absence of hope and in the absence of egalitarian transformative change, grievance politics, I think, can be a very powerful motivator. It's not something we've necessarily seen a lot in this country, but that's been uh, a source of electoral power and support the uh, Marine Le Pen's Front National Party. It's also been a source of support for Bolsonaro's party in Brazil. And those are two movements which skewed quite young. Uh, Again, that's not a story that we see in the UK, but I think that it should show the left or anyone who considers themselves um, to the left of Tim Stanley, at least, that you can't be complacent and rely simply on generational politics. If we fail to produce a political, social and cultural alternative, one which is based on hope, one which is based on uh, mutual respect, one which is based on protection for minorities, one which is based on economic equality, um, then I think that these are the sorts of messages which people might end up being drawn to. I just want to read out something from a reporter who went to this conference from Open Democracy uh, and made observations about who was there. They said that the crowd was almost entirely male and younger than might be expected. Looked like about 80% under 30. And despite assurances from the organisers of National Conservatives and Conference that this was a diverse audience, earnest young men introduced themselves as students from both Oxford and Cambridge. One person piped up that he was attending the elite $78,000 a year private Williams Collins in Massachusetts. Quote, the red wall voters who featured so prominently in rhetoric didn't appear to be terribly well represented among the evidently affluent delegates, many of whom had flown in internationally. Airline labels still affixed to luggage piled up by reception as delegates introduced themselves as being from Pennsylvania, California, Copenhagen and Brussels. So much for anti-globalisation. I think that is a really interesting look at who is actually behind these movements. The National Conservative Conference is of course, organized by a US think tank, the Edmund Burke Foundation. Um, and it's young, angry, 
male elites. And what we know about young angry male elites who have any sort of proximity to political powers, they can do a hell of a lot of damage. Sadly, I do not think the stories and the speeches coming from the National Conservative Conference are going to go away anytime soon. And I fear we will be covering it again and the rhetoric that is coming out of it in years to come. Let's move on to our next story. Now, new ONS data on employment dropped today. Unemployment went up by 0.1%, but overall employment is still up and beyond where it was pre-pandemic. But unsurprisingly, Despite a growth in average pay across both public and private sectors, pay in real terms has fallen by 2%. However, this data revealed another interesting and worrying trend. The number of people in the UK who are not working because of long-term sickness has now reached a record high. More than 2.5 million are no longer in work because of health problems. Now, the BBC attributed this increase in long-term sickness to, quote, mental health issues in younger people and people suffering back and neck pain, possibly due to homeworking. Sure, blame homeworking for the combined impact of a health service backlog, squeezed living conditions and the ongoing tale of conditions like long COVID. It's definitely that I get to work at home a couple of days a week. Moving on. But last year, New Statesman reporter New Shikalian wrote a piece exploring why Britain's workers were getting so sick. Now, the data in the piece showed that people not looking for work were six times more likely than employed people to suffer, quote, a lot from long COVID. Shikalian also wrote, but it's not just about COVID itself. The NHS backlog is at a record high with 6.8 million people waiting for hospital care. This is making people sicker. Mild conditions can become debilitating when neglected. An increase in waiting time for physiotherapy, for example, will lead to increased patient need for painkillers and neurosurgeon at a London NHS hospital explained, giving rise to a potential opioid dependency problem in the future and all the problems associated with this. As an illustration, Shikalian spoke to a 31-year-old London council worker who'd taken time off work in July 2020 with a trapped nerve, but couldn't be seen by a doctor because of the NHS backlog. The NHS was so oversubscribed that he was left waiting. This led him into a depression for the best part of a year. He couldn't work, exercise or socialise. It was a cocktail for disaster, he told me. Before that, I was happy-go-lucky, solutions-driven and upbeat, but I became quiet, reserved and negative. Now he is still on their list somewhere for mental health treatment. There's a clear path of causation there, an initial untreated health issue that leads to further problems requiring more treatment all of which impact his ability to work and long-term health. Now, support for disabled people in the workplace is also falling far short, new research suggests. Disability charity Scope released a report this week looking at why disabled people fall out of work. And they identified four key reasons why job retention is lower among people with long-term health conditions or disabilities. These were negative attitudes and discrimination, challenges getting reasonable adjustments and access to work schemes, inflexible working patterns, and sick pay and return to work process issues. 
That scope report lays bare that many disabled people want to be employed, but they lack the necessary support. And the government isn't addressing the systemic issues that are failing those with long-term health conditions. Remember Chancellor Jeremy Hunt's back-to-work budget just a few months ago? Hunt plans to scrap a despised work capability assessment as part of incapacity benefit reform. Instead, only the personal independence payment test will be used to allocate support. But this means that up to 1 million people on incapacity benefits who don't claim PIP could lose out on £350 a month. Meanwhile, Hunt's proposals were attacked at the time by charities like Mind, who said there was nothing in that budget that, quote, would allow people who are out of work due to a mental health problem to make a full recovery and return to work in a sustainable manner. A problem when part of the rise in long-term sickness is being attributed to mental health issues. Ash, does the way we think about sickness and work capability need changing? Yeah, it absolutely needs to be changed. And I think that one of the reasons why our numbers of disabled people not in education, employment or training are so bad is that this has been a crisis that's a long time in the making. So firstly, we've had an incredibly punitive approach to uh, looking after disabled people in this country. The fitness to work capability assessments were brutal. They were inhumane. They were forcing disabled people into situations which were deeply uncomfortable and sometimes undignified just to get the basic levels of support that they needed. They were very stressful unnecessarily. And also the amount of government support made available to disabled people was brutally cut during the austerity governments of Cameron and May. So what you have ended up with is a system of looking after disabled people, which isn't really about facilitating participation in employment, education, training, and other aspects of public life. It's basically saying your life will be really terrible on benefits, so you better force your way into work any way that you can. Now, that is not a recipe for a happy, healthy, or well-looked-after workforce. And that's before you get into the myriad impacts of the pandemic. So, of course, one is that you've got an NHS backlog. It's much more difficult in order to get seen early for, you know, physical problems or mental health issues, which, if dealt with early, would mean that you could get back into work sooner. You have to wait longer. People find that their symptoms get worse and also then symptoms multiply. So if you're somebody who is unable to, as you uh, quote from in a Shakrelian's article, socialize or exercise, well, those are two things that can really help, uh, you know, bolster your mental health. And so you end up because you've had to wait with, you know, three problems where initially you only had one. I think that there's the issue of long COVID. So people are debilitated sometimes by long COVID symptoms, cases of extreme fatigue or trouble breathing, difficulty concentrating, which makes it difficult for them to participate in the forms of economic activity that they were able to before the pandemic. And then there's also the issue of people who were able to be in employment, education, or training before the pandemic. And now, because COVID is still a thing, uh, and the shielding program has ended without any support for them, have been forced into making some very difficult choices. You've got people 
who have been forced to take different jobs or forced out of the workforce altogether. There's the, you know, the case of the Evyshield vaccine, which is supposed to um, basically bolster the immune response from immunocompromised people should they become infected with COVID. Now, it was something which was approved for use last year. It's not something which has been rolled out by the NHS since. Um, we also haven't seen a mass program of uh, ventilation, um, of installing clean air facilities in places like schools and workplaces, and public buildings, which would again facilitate people who are immunocompromised to participate in public life in the way that they were able to before the pandemic. So I think this is a, a multi-pronged crisis, uh, which is the result of government policy. It's the result of policy choices. It's been caused by austerity. It's been caused by having a punitive, strongly punitive element of the welfare state. It's been caused by underinvestment in the NHS. It's been caused by the COVID backlog. And it's also been caused by the failure to invest after the pandemic in helping people live something of the lives that they had before 2020. Let's go to the next story. Being a woman online is a mixed bag. Sure, you can connect with more people than ever before in human history, and there is the world's knowledge at your fingertips. But unfortunately, this does come with the risk of being exposed to some of the most depraved online misogyny and abuse you can imagine. And then there's the daily micro-incidents of misogyny, as I like to call them, like the endless social media debates about whether a woman's body count matters. How do we solve such a problem as online misogyny? Well, the House of Lords wants to make like Nate Dogg and Warren G and regulate. New amendments being put forward to the Online Safety Bill are proposing codes of conduct that would require social media companies to crack down on online abuse against women and girls. From The Telegraph. A cross-party group of lords led by Baroness Morgan, the former Culture Secretary, is proposing a new legally enforced code of practice that would require social media firms to prevent online abuse and violence against women and girls. The amendment to the Online Safety Bill, due to be debated on Tuesday, is backed by Tory and crossbench peers, the Labour and Liberal Democrat parties and the Church of English bishops, which means the government is likely to be defeated if ministers try and block it. A bishop, a hereditary peer and the former culture secretary walk into a bar. You can finish that joke. What would this enforcement look like exactly? The Telegraph continues saying this. It would mean companies that fail to remove abusive, miso misogynistic content and protect women by banning repeat offenders would face fines worth up to 10% of their global turnover. Bosses could also be jailed for up to two years for persistent breaches under legal changes that would mean online violence and abuse against women and girls was treated in the same way as illegal child sexual abuse and terrorist content. While the Online Safety Bill contains provisions banning the likes of cyber flashing specifically, Baroness Morgan says this is short-sighted, again from The Telegraph. However, Baroness Morgan said the current approach failed to treat violence against women and girls on the internet in the same way it would in the offline world, where it's been made a strategic policing priority on a par with terrorism. She said ministers were also relying too heavily on specific offences such as cyber flashing and sharing indecent images, when misogynistic abuse covered other coercive and threatening behaviours such as pylons. Trying to describe a pylon to my 15-year-old self, good luck. I've got lots of thoughts on this, but before I articulate them, I just want to get your 
reaction, Ash, to these proposals because it reminded me of the attempt to criminalise misogyny as a hate crime. And I was relieved that didn't pass for reasons you will probably explain, but if not, then I will. Did you agree? I was really uncomfortable with the idea of making misogyny a hate crime. And that's not because I think that misogyny is unserious or that it shouldn't be tackled at you know, in a really coordinated and strategic way. What my worry is, is when you take something as big and multifaceted as misogyny, and then you try and form law to tackle it, is that you end up catching a lot of other things in the criminal net, which shouldn't actually be criminalized. And I can give you some examples. So one of the most contentious things uh, that can be debated on the internet right now is trans rights. Now, it is a discussion which has been marked, I think, by harassment, by doxing, by threats of violence, and behaviors which I think, you know, fall short of incitement or harassment, but are just nasty and horrible. This is something which I've experienced myself, right? I've had people who would describe themselves as, you know, gender critical. I would describe them as trans hostile, who, because I am a cisgender woman who is broadly supportive of trans rights, um, you know, will will target me with, with some really nasty stuff. And that's something which many, many trans and non-binary people who have public facing social media accounts have been, uh, you know, subject to as well. And one of the things that you get called, if you're supportive of trans rights, is a misogynist. I'm constantly accused of being misogynist. Trans women, for the crime of existing, constantly being told they're misogynists. Now, of course, people have developed a language to describe transphobia. One of those words, for instance, is TERF, which stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, which is a name that this group of feminists had initially invented for themselves. As this debate has raged on, there are people who are saying, well, turf is a slur. And sure, when people use the word turf, they mean it in a way which is disparaging. But I would say it's not a misogynistic term of abuse. And what worries me, particularly when you look at the balance of political forces in this country at the moment, is that you would end up with a definition of misogyny, which would end up including this kind of, I think, disparaging, but ultimately non-abusive kind of language. And I think it's a very dangerous thing when you go, okay, well, it's the state's role to come in and police debate. The thing which I think is a good idea is, I think, levying fines, levying fines against social media companies who refuse to take action, because we see that in terms of the turn that Twitter has taken at the moment. You've had vast numbers of openly Nazi Twitter accounts being restored by Elon Musk. And just anecdotally, the level of violent threat, outright racial abuse that I've received since Elon Musk took over Twitter has is, is increased exponentially. Now, that shows you that social media platforms already have the power to get rid of uh, this kind of hate speech without uh, that kind of speech being criminalized or made a, you know, its, its own brand new criminal offense. And what they're lacking is the incentive to do it. So I think the levying of fines is, is a good way to do it. Um, I think that there's also a way of, you know, I, I find it funny when people talk about pylons being something which, you know, absolutely needs to be gotten rid of from social media platforms. Well, if you've got a platform like Twitter, where you have a quote tweet feature, and you also have 
the potential for virality built into the platform itself? How do you distinguish between I'm drawing attention to this thing to I intend to cause alarm and distress and psychological pain to this individual? Again, it's not something I would really want the state getting involved with. Um, I think fines are a good idea. I think um, using those fines to make sure that uh, these platforms enforce their terms of use properly, because right now that's not happening. I mean, just the other day, I was being racially abused by someone whose username on Twitter was literally the N-word. That isn't something that should be getting through um, uh, the Twitter's uh, safety feature. Something's gone deeply wrong if it has. But they had the ability to deal with that without being forced to by criminalizing speech acts. And I think they can be pressured with fines. Totally agree, Ash. I had written down fines, probably a good idea. I think a lot about this in relation to the legislation that was proposed on making misogyny and hate crime, the process that it went through, because there were three different camps initially when, why that legislation was even proposed in the first place to criminalize misogyny as a hate crime. Initially, it was a part of a campaign by on the ground grassroots groups, mostly of Muslim women in Newcastle and Nottingham, I believe. And they wanted just to have misogyny recorded as a separate category of its own when when hate crimes were reported. Because what these Muslim women were noticing is that when they were racially abused, uh, what was happening was the racial abuse they were receiving or the abuse they were receiving was slightly different to the straight up Islamophobic abuse that Muslim men they knew were receiving because it wasn't just Islamophobic abuse, there was also misogyny within it. And therefore they wanted, when these crimes were reported, they wanted that recorded as a separate factor, as misogyny to be a separate thing involved in a hate crime. But this got picked up by, you know, the campaign Stella Carisi at the forefront who wanted to criminalise this full stop. Uh, And the reason that I was, again, uncomfortable with this like you, Ash, is because I think putting that power with the police and putting the criminalisation of stuff like misogyny is never going to solve misogyny, especially with the policing system that we have currently in, it's not working as it is. You know, we, this, when we were looking at that story there, Baroness Morgan was saying, okay, well, why do we not treat misogyny the way we treat, uh, you know, child terrorism or child abuse? It's like, well, how is that working out on a grand scale in policing? Are those, are those things being tackled effectively? How are the police dealing with misogyny as it is? the police enacting a lot of misogyny, I would argue. The police are not friends to women the country over. So these are all things that I think about when we talk about things like, let's just criminalise this, let's regulate this by putting the powers of enforcement with police. Um, But yeah, overall, I want to say that I believe that fines, very much good idea. Unfortunately, right now, money talks when it comes to things like massive social media companies. Okay, let's move on to our next story. General Secretary of the Royal College of Nursing, Pat Cullen, has been speaking at the Union's Congress in Brighton. And in a wide-ranging speech, she talked about the government's unwillingness to meaningfully negotiate and criticise their plan to introduce nursing apprenticeships. But there's one area of Cullen's speech that I really do want to focus on. Let's, Let's take a look. Colleagues, nursing in the United Kingdom is fantastically international. Diversity is one of our many strengths as a profession and as a royal college. We are working ever more closely with internationally educated colleagues and diaspora groups to make sure the RCN meets the needs of all members. We will lead on an anti-racist agenda. 
in this hall alone, there will be colleagues who completed their education and perhaps started their careers in Africa, in Asia, and in the Americas. Whether somebody comes to this country ready to work as a highly skilled nurse, or they arrive as a political refugee, fleeing war or persecution, or they simply want a new and prosperous life in the UK, they are beyond welcome. And that should not need saying. But let me say something very, very simple. The way this government talks about migration sickens me. Our country deserves a better, more informed and celebratory national conversation, especially in this anniversary year of Windrush. Colleagues from anywhere around the world, near or far, you are very, very welcome. You are welcome and much needed in the NHS and in the care system. It is your home as much as it is my home. God, wouldn't it be so refreshing to hear Labour politician talk about migration in that tone? Instead, we have to look to our union leaders to actually stand up from the people from all around the world who work to keep our public services together. Wouldn't it be great to hear any politician, really, from any party talk about having, quote, a celebratory national conversation? Instead, this is what we get from our current leaders. Afghan families in Yorkshire issued with eviction letters from Suella Braverman. Refugees, including a special forces soldier, a political advisor received notice to quit letters from Home Secretary. Personally delivered, I imagine. It's worth stressing that this is a story about Afghan refugees who worked for our government during the occupation of Afghanistan. The Guardian reports this. The letters were delivered after the UK government announced in March it would move all 24,500 Afghans out of temporary bridging accommodation or hotels this year and said that they must accept the first offer of accommodation from the Home Office. The letter said, quote, For the avoidance of doubt, if possession is not delivered upon by the notice date, you will be a trespasser and the Secretary of State for the Home Department shall be at liberty to evict you from your property. Can you imagine Suella Braveman turning up with that smug smile outside your door and telling you you've got to get out now? Because she would do that. I think she would just go herself. Now, these are the same families that were the centre of this story published in March. Afghan refugees told to leave London say they lost jobs and school places. In February, the families were uprooted from a London hotel and moved to Weatherby in Yorkshire, not to houses, but to yet another hotel. They reported doctor's appointments, operations and jobs being lost because of the move. And a month after they were relocated, three GCSE students and other children as young as five were still without school places. And now they're being forced to move again. But this time, the government hasn't offered them new accommodation, despite promising to. And the Home Office isn't helping them find accommodation of their own. The Guardian goes on to report this. The families, including a special forces soldier, translator and a political advisor, say they have attempted to find homes themselves, but have been thwarted by slow bureaucracy within the Home Office and local councils. 
Mohammed, one of the Afghan residents, said he had found and then lost two available properties in outer London after problems that the Home Office could not solve. He said, quote, There has been problems for all of us, with either the guarantor, the deposit, or the eligibility of the local authority or not having a job. This has all been made worse because we have been moved from London to Yorkshire, leaving jobs and contacts behind. The refugees are part of the government's sickly and falsely named Operation Warm Welcome Resettlement Scheme. For some of them, it will be the fourth time they've had to change home in 18 months. A reminder that moving home is apparently more stressful than divorce. We do not treat our Afghan refugees well at all. But don't worry, we treat our asylum seekers even worse. And hell-bent on making their lives as miserable as possible, Rishi Sunak has travelled to Iceland today. Why? to ask the top European Court of Human Rights judges to reform the way the court works and ditch the Rule 39 orders that were used to ground Rwanda flights last year. The Times explains it here. In a meeting with Shiofra O'Leary, President of the European Court of Human Rights, the Prime Minister will make a personal appeal for her to back Britain's attempt to change rules that meant the first scheduled deportation flight to Rwanda was blocked at the last minute in June. They will meet in Reykjavik at a rare summit of the Council of Europe, the 46th member group of countries founded after the Second World War. The UK is trying to reform the European Court's use of interim injunctions to ensure that they cannot be used to arbitrarily block deportation flights. It has requested that the court introduce a higher legal threshold for applicants to seek an injunction. It also wants to be able to submit legal representation against injunctions to ensure, quote, proper transparency and allow decisions to be reconsidered. Iceland's foreign minister, Tordis Gilfadottir, has appeared on Radio 4's The World at One, where she seemed to pour cold water on Sunak's grand plans. The British Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, one of his aims today is to raise the idea that the international migration system is not working. Is mm -hmm. he right? Do you accept that? This summit has not a big focus on that. The, the, the biggest focus is, of course, uh, Ukraine and then other issues such as uh, AI and environment and other things. So there, this summit is, doesn't have a big focus on, on mm. migration in general, but I agree that that is an issue for Europe. And, uh, of course, that system has to develop with the challenges that we face. Indeed. Well, it, it is a big, obviously, it's a big issue for the Prime Minister and this government. And that's mm -hmm. partly because the European Court of Human Rights used something called Rule 39 regulation to block deportations to Rwanda. And the Prime mm -hmm. Minister now wants to reform that rule. And just to, ex we should explain that it's in Rule 39, it's an interim me measure. It means that anybody who's applying would otherwise face an imminent risk of irreparable damage and then the court imposes something which actually countries may or may not abide by. But the UK wants to reform that. Will other European countries, will Iceland, agree to have a look at it and consider changing it? What I can say in general regarding legitimacy and the court, that uh, this is one of the issues we are addressing here in Reykjavik. Um, the leaders are reconfirming their commitment to the common human rights protection system, and in particular the court as a cornerstone of our protection system. And of course, this is a continuous dialogue between states and the Council of Europe on how to best ensure that this system is addressing our needs today, as well as, in particular, how we can support the implementation of judgment by states. But the next two days, we are the, the time we have, we are not uh, using to reform 
certain articles about uh, or in the court. I think one of the things that's really interesting and something that shows just how much of an outlier the UK is right now is that our ruling Conservative Party has more in common, I think, with the likes of Victor Orban or even Donald Trump in terms of what function they think the judiciary ought to serve, which is if there is a strongly independent judiciary, well, they want it to be quite weak in terms of what kinds of decisions they're able to make. So if the government wants to deport traumatized asylum seekers to Rwanda, no matter what claims they have pending here, well, they want to be able to do that without the judiciary interfering and saying, well, hang on, you're breaching all other kinds of laws and legal rights that these individuals have here. They want to weaken the ability of the judiciary to function independently of the government. But what the likes of, you know, Victor Orban and Donald Trump want is, well, they're happy with a strong judiciary, one which is capable of making quite politically transformative decisions so long as it's in line with the government or a particular political faction's priorities and interests. Now, something that you've seen in Poland, something you've seen in Hungary, is something that you've seen with the partisanship of the Supreme Court. And so when you put a question to another European leader about, well, you know, Rishi Sunak wants to change the way these courts function, basically, so that you've got a higher threshold for intervention. That way, the government can get away with deporting absolutely who it likes. Well, you've got other European leaders saying courts aren't meant to work that way. We really are an outlier. I just want to reflect back on the treatment of refugees and asylum seekers in this country and just how disruptive and stressful and I think cruel the policies of dispersal are. So I wish I could say that it was those nasty conservatives who introduced the policy of dispersal, which is moving asylum seekers and refugees away from city centres and London in particular and into other parts of the country. But that was actually a new Labour policy. And it was something which resulted in the early 2000s in a lot of racial attacks, abuse and harassment of asylum seekers because they'd been uprooted from bits of the country where they might be able to find some community and dispersed into areas which tended to be poorer and also were a lot less diverse. So they were unable to find those bonds of community, of cultural understanding and help. And it was something which resulted in an awful lot of division. Now, that was something which, you know, you saw up and down in the country, but quite notably places like Peterborough, like Oldham, like other bits of Yorkshire. It was a Labour policy. And I think it was a really nasty one, and a really bad one. And so when you've got people being dispersed in that way, and you so eloquently explained the disruption to healthcare and to education, You've also got an effect of making people feel like they don't really have a home here, that they're not going to be able to put down roots, settle in and do exactly what it is these politicians are always complaining about, which is integrate, which is participate in society, participate in public life. There's another, I think, barrier to that happening in the way that it should, which is, again, as a result of new labor policy, asylum seekers 
are unable to work while their claims are being processed for at least a year. Now, other countries don't do it that way. Australia and Canada and Sweden, if you're an asylum seeker, you can apply for a job and start working legally straight away. In Portugal, it's one month. In Germany, it's three months. In Belgium, it's four months. Now, these are all examples of countries where asylum seekers are able to work. It means that they're able to have a life outside of whatever accommodation they've been placed in. And of course, it's something which, you know, reduces the impact on the treasury because they're able to do things like pay tax. They're also able to do things like pay for more of their costs and expenses while they're here. And it's something that asylum seekers really want to do. Many asylum seekers report the impact on their mental health, the feelings of loneliness and purposelessness, because while they're waiting for their claims to be assessed by the home office, they're just stuck in limbo with nothing to do, nowhere to go apart from, you know, the hostel or hotel where they've been placed. Now, these are all really common sense policies, which is, okay, where are you going to seek out accommodation for asylum seekers? Maybe it should be in a place where they can experience a sense of community. Hmm. Do you want asylum seekers being totally and 100% in every case reliant on the state? Or do you want them to be able to work? Well, because New Labour at that time was trying to pander to an anti-asylum moral panic, which was being whipped up by Rupert Murdoch's stable of newspapers, we've ended up with the worst of all worlds. So you've got the policy of dispersal. You've got people being moved on really frequently, disrupting their ability to make friends, get an education, find relevant healthcare, hold down jobs. And you've also got them being prevented from working while their claims are being assessed. And that's the thing about the kind of immigration policy that we have in this country, which is it's so nasty, it has ceased to be rational or efficient. Let's go to the next story. Nigel Farage dedicated his life to getting Britain out of the EU. And in 2016, he came one step closer to getting his wish when the country narrowly voted to leave. And then at the end of 2020, that dream finally became a reality when the UK officially left the European Union. Three years on, how is Farage feeling about his greatest success? On BBC Newsnight, Victoria Derbyshire put that question to him. A poll from last month showed that this is a general Brexit question. 53% of people say it was wrong to Brexit. That was a poll last mm. month. Around one in five Leave voters regret it. The OBR forecasts a 4% hit to the economy <laughs> over the medium to <laughs> long term. Don't make me laugh on Hang that. Hang on, yeah. four, that's 40 billion in it's tax revenues. The UK economy is the only G7 economy not back to its pre-pandemic size. Business investment has lagged behind comparable economies. Economically, the UK would have been better staying in, wouldn't it? I don't think that for a moment. But what I do Based think... Based on all that. But what, I do, but what I do think is we haven't actually benefited from Brexit economically, when we could have done. I mean, what Brexit's proved... I'm afraid, is that our politicians are about as useless as the commissioners in Brussels were. We've mismanaged this totally. And if you look at simple things, simple things uh, such as takeovers, such as corporation tax, we are driving business away from our country. Arguably, now we're back in control, we're regulating our own businesses even more than they were okay. as EU members. Brexit has failed. for you, then? Well, I wouldn't root it out. It's not top of my bucket list, but frankly, we've not delivered on borders. We've not delivered on Brexit. The Tories have let us down very, very badly. We have a government stacked full of Brexit headbangers. Brexiteers have been in charge since 2019. And the Tories' whole parliamentary majority is based on an influx of hard-right MPs 
voted in on the promise of an oven-ready Brexit deal. And yet, somehow, that's not enough. Let's take a look at something Farage promised back in 2017. Tony, if Brexit a disaster, I will go and live abroad. I'll go and live somewhere else. But you know what, Tony? Do you know what, Tony? It isn't going to be a disaster. Someone tell me where Nigel Farage lives right now because I suspect he splits his time between Britain and elsewhere. Ash, where are you on this? Was Brexit a disaster because of the people orchestrating it or was it because it was Brexit? Well, I think it's both. People voted Brexit for a variety of reasons, but a really big reason why many Labour voters, particularly outside of London, voted for Brexit was that I think that they had a really sincere belief that the state had failed to do anything for anybody, that we were stuck in a period of stagnation, if not decline, and that the establishment needed a kick up the arse in order to start getting things done. And so I think it felt a little bit like, you know, smacking the top of the TV to try and make it work again. They wanted to kick the levers of of UK governance out of this horrible inertia. And that's not something that happened. Yes, Brexit delivered a massive political shock. Yes, you had a significant amount of political and electoral volatility. But ultimately, the state just kept on doing the thing that it was going to do, which is facilitate the extraction of money from workers and shoveling it towards people who were already wealthy. And that's because it was a conservative government. And that's because it was a conservative government, which, yes, was maybe leaning towards, you know, a little bit more intervention on the economy. But ultimately, they didn't want to, you know, mess with what existed too much. And I think also the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson was so ruthlessly defenestrated by his own party, it sort of meant that that, you know, leveling up conservatism was, you know, dead along with his career. So I think that that's one of the reasons why people voted Brexit and it didn't happen because you've had politics being captured so much by a particular economic orthodoxy that you weren't going to, I think, have the reversal of that flow of capital from workers towards the wealthy. I also think that it's inarguable that there was going to be a degree of economic downturn from leaving the EU. And I think that people who voted to leave the EU were well aware of that. I don't think that they voted leave because they thought it was going to be all sunlit uplands all the way. I think that people knew that if you voted leave a trading block of 28 nations uh, who are geographically closest to you and also happen to be your biggest trading partners, that that's going to have an impact on growth. But I think that they thought that the return of sovereignty uh, to the UK, the UK's own parliament being able to make its own laws was worth it. And I think that that's fine to make as a political calculation. I happen to vote Remain and I wanted to stay in the EU for uh, immigration reasons to preserve freedom of movement. But I totally understand the calculation that people make, which is we're going to trade off economic growth to some degree for sovereignty. Now, again, We still have a massive democratic deficit in this country because of the electoral system we have, uh, because of the way in which governments are able to ignore huge chunks of national opinion. I mean, the majority of conservative voters want to see the nationalization of public utilities like mail and water. And that's not something which is being reflected in either major party right now. Um, So people are still 
significantly locked out of the political process and locked out of having their wishes, their preferences, their desires and their values reflected by the parties who control the boundaries of respectable opinion. And that's because that process of disenfranchisement didn't really have anything to do with the EU. It had everything to do with our electoral system, our media culture, and our political culture as well. And I think that there's another reason why Brexit will feel like a failure to many Brexiteers. Now, I'm not really talking about Nigel Farage here because he's a snake oil salesman. He was never going to say that Brexit was a success without him being captain of the ship. Uh, he's someone who has looked out first and foremost for his own political career and used Brexit very effectively as a you know wedge which could break open a place for him within the top of British politics. He did that very successfully. But I think for lots of Brexiteers, the reason why they'll often go, they'll also go, well, hang on, we voted primarily on immigration and it's not it's not achieved the results that we wanted. It's not delivered a low immigration, high wage economy. Well, there are reasons for that. One is that we have an aging population. We have an aging population. And so unless you have a significant amount of immigration effectively replenishing the workforce, you're going to end up with very low growth and a very high tax burden. Uh, that's the direction that we're going in anyway, even with immigration numbers um, you know, on the increases we've seen. But that's a that's a fact of an aging population. We can't, we can't um we can't have the low birth rate and low immigration at the same time. It's just not something which you can, uh, you know, build an economic settlement on. The second thing is that the Brexit that was being demanded, which is, okay, well, we're going to get rid of all of these low wage workers who come from other countries and we're going to replace them with the high wage, so-called high skilled workers from other countries, is that the other bit of that bargain, which is, and that means Brits have to take all those low-wage jobs, was the part which was said in a whisper, because that's not a very appealing prospect at all. And I think we saw that with Suella Braverman's speech this week, where she was saying that it's going to have to be Brits who are picking fruit and veg and driving lorries and doing these other jobs. Now, the National Farmers Union, alongside the government, actually ran a really massive campaign during the pandemic to try and get Brits uh, into fruit and veg picking jobs because seasonal workers hadn't been over, hadn't been able to travel, combination of pandemic and Brexit. And there was remarkably little uptake. One, that's because um, fruit and veg picking, though derided as low skills, actually very demanding work, very physically demanding, requires stamina and also does require experience and skill. And two, the conditions of that work, the pay of that work, mean that if you already have a home in this country, a family, a social group, things that you want to do, it's not a great sell to go, okay, and now live in a shared caravan for months at a time. And you're not even guaranteed that work for the whole year. Whereas if you're somebody who comes from a different country, £11.50 an hour will go quite far if you send it back home. You'll go, okay, well, I'll take that on. Um, so this, this reality of a post-Brexit UK, which is both low wage and low immigration, simply cannot work. And it will not work. And that's the problem that the government is running into. That's the problem that people who voted Brexit are running into. And that's the problem that arch-Brexiteers like Nigel Farage are running into. Because nobody looks at what we've got right now and goes, 
yeah, you know what? That's better than it was six or seven years ago. Nobody says that. Thanks everyone for watching this evening. We will be back tomorrow at 6 p.m. for another live stream. But for now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.